2: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by LaCrosse Boots. Now, if you guys haven't had the opportunity to check out the new Navigator series from LaCrosse, you need to do so. In that series are two boots, the Windrose and the Atlas. I had the Atlas boot for the entire rut vacation that I had, and I will tell you that it is a very comfortable boot. Uh, it's very waterproof, and it's basically a hybrid between your traditional rubber boot and a uh, hunting traditional hiking boot. Uh, Really comfortable, really easy to break in, and uh, it held heat relatively well with the pairing of a really good sock or socks. So if you want to find out more information about the Navigator Series or the rubber boot lineup from LaCrosse, visit lacrossefootwear.com. All right, everybody, happy new year and welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. We have a very interesting episode today and I'm continuing with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources theme and today we're going to be talking with a fur bear wildlife biologist. His name is Vince Evelsizer and Vince is just kind of going to talk to us about the state of fur bears in Iowa. We're going to be talking about otters, Bobcats, coyotes, raccoons, possums—all the fur bears within the state of Iowa. We're going to talk about what he does on an annual basis, what he does um, to contribute to the fur bear, I guess, uh, the, the habitat. All the things that involve where the fur bears live, the, I guess, the trapping limits, the trapping seasons, all the the rules and regulations. We cover all of that. So if you like to trap. Or maybe you don't even care about fur bearers at all and you just want some information about them Uh, because until I had this talk with Vince I really didn't care about raccoons I didn't care about uh, you know otters and mink and uh, you know possums and whatnot Uh, the only thing I really uh, focused on throughout the year would be bobcats and coyotes so, bobcats and how they could potentially affect uh, a turkey population, or coyotes and how they could affect a, a deer population, and uh, Vince does a really good job of talking about those uh, those topics with me, and, amongst other things. So, uh, very interesting episode, hopefully you guys enjoy it. As always, before we get into an episode, we got to thank our partners at Bondurant Custom Furniture. Uh, now, Bondurant Custom Furniture is an awesome company and what they do their specialty is they take old whiskey barrels and they refurbish them into tables and chairs and artwork and a variety of other furniture type uh, options right and these guys also if you call them up and say hey uh, I want a custom piece built they'll make that for you right they're in Bondurant Iowa and if you guys want to go and check out all of the awesome furniture that these guys make you need to go to bondurantcustomfurniture.com click on their gallery you can flip through all the images there really neat stuff so check out bondurantcustomfurniture.com all right we've paid the bills again happy new year be sure you are subscribing to the Iowa sportsman uh, podcast be sure you are visiting the iowasportsman.com website Be sure that you guys are subscribed to the Iowa Sportsman Magazine. And with those three things, you're getting a ton of Iowa-related content. And a lot of the times, the content that is on this podcast or is in the magazine or, or website is... Uh, statewide, and what I mean by that is it can be transferred to other states the the information the principles that you can that you learn can be transferred to other states throughout the Midwest for sure so uh, just keep that in mind all right here we go with today's podcast with wildlife biologist Vince Evelsizer all right today I am joined by Vince. Evelsizer of the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. Vince, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks, Dan.
2: Good, good. So we've kind of had a a, a very mild start to winter here thus far. Uh, you guys are out of Clear Lake. How's your winter been?
1: Well, North Iowa actually had a had a cold November where we saw a lot of water bodies freeze over, you know, pretty early again this fall in November and then it moderated and kind of warmed back up in the North half of Iowa, especially North central and Northwest Iowa got cold pretty early. And so that made it tough, challenging for trappers, you know, to be able to trap, you know, all through November, like they typically can, you know, where they are experiencing ice, you know, so they're either having to break ice to make sets or had to, to change their sets, you know, up to land or, or places that had, uh, tile outlets, places of open water, even after ice up occurred, you know, so then here, as we get into de- December and looking at January, the most of the rest of the state, you know, has been fairly mild here again, and that's opened back up the water, the ice, you know, and, and provided, you know, some longer term opportunities for them here in the mid
2: season right i can remember sitting in my tree stand uh, somewhere around november 12th this year and i i wasn't even looking for deer at that point i was i just had my face mask up my hood cinched as tight as i possibly could and uh it was like negative 12 that morning so yeah yeah so you mentioned trapping and that is what we're going to talk about today um we're going to talk about fur bears and I want, first of all, uh, before we get into the topic at hand today, I want to talk about your role within the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, and maybe a little bit about what you do on a monthly, annual basis.
1: Okay, uh, the term fur bears goes back a ways, you know, and is tied in with the fur trade, you know, where the it's the animals or the the ones that are mammals, you know, have hair or a pelt. And, uh, they're the ones that can be sold in the fur market. And so when we talk about fur bears, we're talking about those that bear fur for the fur market. So it's everything from mink, muskrats, coons, beavers, otters, bobcats, you know, on animals like that. So it would not be things like, you know, squirrels or, or, you know, other rodents or deer, you know, or anything like that. So. My role within the Iowa DNR, I'm, I'm in the Wildlife Bureau and, and the research section of the Wildlife Bureau. So so my job or role for the Wildlife Bureau is to oversee all things related to our fur bearers in Iowa. Um, and so that means monitoring their population. Are they doing well? Is the, is the population going up or down? It's typically not a stagnant thing for each species it's usually going up or down so we watch that Um, we also oversee um, things going on with their habitats and also the trapping you know and fur hunting regulations i'm not a law enforcement officer but i help you know with with setting seasons that are appropriate for our fur bears and um, so it's population and disease monitoring and and watching the harvest annually too as well kind of compiling that information for our fur bear species much like our upland wild uh, upland game bird biologist does for pheasants and quail or our turkey and deer biologists so i'm in the same section as as those folks as well
2: okay so you mentioned a whole bunch of things right there uh what What do you actually do throughout a year, you know, in regards to what you just mentioned?
1: Yeah, um, it ends up being quite a few different things in a year. It makes the job fun. You know, every day is not fun, but it makes it's an interesting job. It's it's a very wildlife oriented job. Um, So in a typical year, um, let's start. Let's start with uh, now, you know, we're starting into the new year. Calendar, you know, year and, and things like that. We're about two thirds of the way through the fur bear fur harvest season here, so we're, we we uh, we are in charge of um, the CITES tags, for example. We administer all CITES tags for otters and bobcats, and so we've got we've got to get that to all the staff, all the wildlife and law enforcement staff throughout the state. We get the tags from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and then we're in charge of keeping track in an inventory of who has what tags. Each tag is individually numbered, and then that's given to a a trapper or a predator hunter when they get a bobcat or an otter. And then we keep track of that data then, too. We ask for harvest information when that trapper or hunter gets a tag from us from the DNR to for that pelt um we then ask you know what county was it harvested in what was the date the gender of the animal and how was it harvested and then we also try to get a tooth or you know or collect a jaw there from that otter bobcat slower jaw you know and we take we send that in to get aged too and that helps us look at the the size or the age structure i should say of our otters and bobcats and and they get the tags and we keep track of the data you know on that kind of thing and then here at the end of january we compile that information and and organize it and analyze it and all that good stuff and then we also collect any incidental otters and bobcats that were trapped um incidental we mean more like accidental uh let's say a a trapper harvested his two otters, which is the bag limit for the year on otters, but he catches a third one incidentally in a beaver 330 trap, for example, which is a common scenario. If he just simply contacts the DNR and and turns that, that otter is then turned into the DNR then. So we collect those animals as well. And then in late March, early April, we typically have a, a skinning day with Hawkeye Community College students and the instructors there, which has been a very good thing where we spend a day working. They help us skin those extra animals, those incidental otters and bobcats, and then we work up information from them. And then those pelts, if they're in good shape, are sold in the fur market. Um, we're typically collecting 30 or 40 otters and 30 or 40 bobcats total. So it's not a large number of animals. It's it, but it's a way to utilize those animals so that they're not wasted. Right. And so that money from the fur market, those pellets goes back into our fish and wildlife trust fund. Um, is all that's done with that money. Um, so that's one thing that's done, um, in the meantime, uh, as far as other tasks,
2: one, one second. Uh, I have a question about yeah. that. When, yeah. you know, you're collecting all this data, what does the data that you collect as far as, let's say, the bobcat and the otters that you just mentioned, what is the, what does that go? Does that go to um, What's change Yeah, season limits and te- uh, bag limits and season dates and stuff like that?
1: Yes, in a nutshell. It, what it does is it helps um, give us information and, and and understand or know what's going on with the harvest that way. We know by doing that where the animals are being harvested uh, each year, we know the age of the animals. We we age approximately 20% of the total harvest of otters and for bobcats. So then we can keep an eye on the age structure. It what For example, with that, we don't want to start seeing all of the harvest being young of the year animals with you know if we saw that that would tell us we're probably allowing for too much harvest but if we see a nice age uh you know distribution of old animals and middle-aged animals and some young animals that tells us that things are fine we're not over harvesting those animals because there's a lot of older animals out there getting harvested um, the location of harvest you know and things like that um, helps us see where they're getting harvested and and it helps with anything and then it helps with whether we should have zones on harvest or keep it simple and not have zones um, looking at the method of take it helps us see how they're being harvested the most you know and you know is there dry land bears, you know that are getting a lot of them or is it a lot of uh water sets, you know, depending if it's otters here or you know, and then for bobcats, is there a lot of uh, you know, we're looking at how many gun deer hunters or how many archers are taking bobcats and how many are getting uh called in, you know, from predator hunting and how many are getting trapped. And that helps us simply understand and know, you know, and be in touch with our fur harvesters about what's going on out there in the landscape and that you know, that in turn then helps us with um you know, season setting, bag limits, and that kind of thing. In the meantime, we do wildlife surveys annually as well um, that help us monitor the population of of our fur bears, and that helps with season setting too. I'm lucky, you know, with fur bears, we don't change a lot with the season, and that's that's a good thing in general, in my opinion, because it doesn't complicate things each year for for our fur harvesters but we do continue to look at it every year what the two seasons that have changed the most and probably will continue to is the otters and bobcats okay and that's not something we do on purpose to just make things complicated for our fur harvesters it's done because those two seasons are new and they are evolving so to speak and right and uh changing or adapting to what that pop both those populations are doing and so We allow harvest, but also want to responsibly manage the population, you know, and meaning that we want to keep both populations healthy um, and abundant and, and have them out there, you know, doing well and, and allow, but allow fair harvest on them. Right.
2: So bobcat and otter are, um, are those mandatory reporting species or are all, uh, fur bear, uh, fur bears that are caught, mandatory reporting.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It's just for those two. That um, within seven, in our regulations booklet, we explain that um, right now, uh, fur harvester should contact you know somebody with DNR wildlife or law enforcement within seven days of harvest um, to arrange to get a cites tag. Um and and so at that point that's a that's a method of reporting we don't have folks right now call in or do it online like we do for our deer and turkeys you know it's not the same and then for all the other species the coons mink muskrat beaver and stuff they don't have to report anything when they harvest them so okay we know we know i'm you know i hope this doesn't sound too complicated. We know what our harvest is, though, for each species because we get that from our fur buyers annually. Okay. They report what they buy for raw furs purchased from our fur harvesters, and we combine all that. There's roughly 32 fur buyers in Iowa, um, and it's in an Iowa code that they report the number of raw furs purchased to us each year by May 15th. And that's how we compile the harvest for each fur bear species. Got you. But we're getting it real time or 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 right away for otters and bobcats.
2: Right, right. Just because, and the, just because that is so new and you need that data to help make decisions for next year's seasons.
1: Yeah. Um we it's it's more of a um a bonus and getting it kind of real time or right away for those two species because they require the CITES tag. Mm-hmm. And so we're able to get that, simply get that information sooner than okay. just from the fur buyers at the end of the season. I should quickly probably explain CITES tags. I think some folks um, wonder what that's all about. If uh, Could I explain yeah, a little absolutely. bit about go, go that? Yeah, absolutely. Go right and, into it. Okay, the CITES tag stands for the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species. And and so it's a federal mandate that all states within the US ha- need to have a CITES need to have CITES tags for otters and bobcats. So what the we get that from the Fish and Wildlife US Fish and Wildlife Service. They send us the tags. All, each state gets them from the Fed federal, from the Fish and Wildlife Service, and then they ask each state to to keep track of the inventory and and get them out and and manage those tags however they want within their state. And so, um, this is not something the Iowa DNR dreamed up, you know, to make things complicated for our fur harvesters or or something like that. The reason that the CITES tags are sent to these states including Iowa is to help them with law enforcement with their special agents at airports and internet border crossings and things like that um they if there's a tag on that pelt they can know where it came from quickly so if they're at an airport and they've got a bunch of hides and pelts that they've got to go through they want to know which ones are on you know if if there's an ot, river otter pelt for example at the airport um, that was maybe in the going into the black market or, or appears to be illegal, and there's an Iowa CITES tag on that otter, they can look right away and be like, no, that's a legal otter that was taken in the Midwest. It's not. So what they want to do is they don't want, they want to know if that otter is a regular river otter or an endangered sea otter, oh, okay. and it helps them check that quicker. Okay. And then with bobcats, they can check cat pelts quicker, because there's several species of endangered jungle cats, you know, right, and and so it helps them check if that's just a just a bobcat from the Midwest or if it's some endangered jungle cat. And sometimes the pelts look similar and and things like that. And so it it's nothing more than to help with their law enforcement at the federal level, and they've got a tough job doing that with all the animals and things going on at the, you know, the international level with with checking all that. Yeah. And so that's the background with sight's tags.
2: Okay. I kind of want to uh shift directions because it just kinda popped into my head right now. And I know fur bears have a wide range. Uh I mean, not all fur bears are predators like a bobcat and a coyote. Um, and then you have your, your raccoons, muskrats, and uh possums and you know, and skunks and things like that, badgers and whatnot. What this is this may be a complicated question because I feel like there's a different answer for every species that I just mentioned. But what role do fur bears play within an ecosystem like Iowa? Well,
1: um, they're they're important, you know, in in several regards. So so things like are uh, the the way to break it down is by by group or guild um, the predators and, and the semi-aquatic, you know, animals out there. And uh, it would be one way to look at it. And, and then the other animals, the, so, so let's start with predators, the, the coyotes, foxes, you know, and even things like skunks, possums, you know, and, and, things like that play a role as being a predator. And so they can help with our rodent populations and they do sometimes take other game species like pheasants or turkey, you know, and that's that's part of it, but that's been going on for many years. Um, but their their role out there on the landscape is, is to be a predator. And in Iowa and in other Midwest states, the coyote is, is top dog, so to speak. Um, with some of our other animals, mink are another important predator, weasels, you know, too. Those are all predators that are good to be out there in the landscape as predators. It really helps with keeping rodent populations and things like that in check. Um, some of the other animals, you know, let's talk about the aquatic ones or the semi-aquatic animals, the the beaver and the muskrat. Beavers, even though us humans don't always look at it favorably, they're extremely good engineers with making their, their dams, you know and and therefore the the beaver ponds and the beaver lodges you know and things like that and the beaver ponds that beavers create also creates excellent wildlife habitat sometimes they don't design it and build it in the right spot that is convenient to us humans we understand that but mm-hmm. if they're doing it kind of out in the back forty or in a you know rural area that can create some great wildlife habitat. And so beavers are extremely, you know, it's it's amazing what they can, desi- you know, build and engineer with their their you know, their teeth and and their paws. It's just amazing and the trees that they'll take to do that with with the willows and things with and then in turn the the lodge and the bank dens that beavers excavate or build with the lodge can be great habitat for other fur bears. by the way too things like river otters especially um then when you talk about the muskrat they're an extremely you know good animal to have or rodent to have in our marshes in iowa and the midwest and and you know throughout north america they 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 can open up marshes by u- utilizing marsh vegetation like cattails and river bulrush and things like that. They'll build their houses out of it. They'll make openings out in the marsh and also provide a really important prey base for other predators too. mink and, and you know coyotes and foxes, owls, raptors and stuff all feed on muskrats when they can. And so, and then, on top of that, the the huts or the homes that they build out there in those marshes are always in, utilized and enjoyed by something as big or as charismatic as a trumpeter swan almost in in many most cases, trumpeter swans will build their nest on top of a muskrat house in a natural situation in a marsh, and other waterfowl loaf and rest and preen on muskrat houses and, and utilize marshes where there's muskrats. And so there's always been this natural cycle, uh, with prairie marshes, you know, getting wet and drying up and the muskrat population booming and busting with that cycle. So, um, so that's in a nutshell, Dan. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, I want to talk about a couple, uh, a couple animals specifically. Um, and it's, I see them all the time and whether it's, you know, driving down the road or walking through the timber or getting out of my truck and uh, in an area, I see a lot of raccoons and I see a lot of uh, possum, And, yeah. you know, I always look at an animal like that as just an animal that is, I you don't know, it's just there. It doesn't have a, it doesn't, doesn't look like it has a role in in the food chain or the ecosystem. It just, I don't know. It's there. What, what role specifically does a raccoon or a possum play in a, in a food chain or ecosystem?
1: Well, just like the other animals, um, that's a, they, so the raccoon. let's start with the raccoon. Um, they're, they're considered an omnivore, um, they they'll eat field corn and, and fruits when they're in season. So like berries, apples, plums, that kind of thing. But then they'll also feed on things like crayfish and frogs and, and fish, you know, when given the opportunity. So, so their role is, is that, is that they're kind of an intermediate omnivore type species that's out there. unfortunate And then um, with the possum, um, they're more of a scavenger. They're kind of a funny animal they don't see very well. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and they're, they're a marsupial. Uh, they've been out for a long time on this landscape. They're almost prehistoric the way they're built. Um, they, they're they more of a scavenger-type animal. And And sometimes, you know, and now there's been a little bit of research that shows possums may eat a lot of ticks. And But there's more to find out with that. But if yeah. they do, that would be a pretty interesting benefit, you know, that we didn't used to know that possums do. And ticks can be a concern, you know, due to, like, Lyme's disease and other tick-borne diseases out there, that if we have this animal that does indeed eat a high proportion of ticks, you know, that's a pretty cool thing to know. Um But the other thing, going back to raccoons, is we have too many raccoons now out on our landscape, and that's not a good thing, and that's not really a natural thing either. The reason we have more raccoons is there's multiple reasons, but we have some of the main ones reasons now is that we there's less trapping pressure out there than there used to be, and the fur market for raccoons has sagged considerably. The average price for raccoon pellets is 6 to $8, and um, so there's fewer of them being harvested. In the meantime, there's a lot of field corn out there on our landscape, and that artificially inflates raccoon numbers because they feed on field corn, and it's a readily available food source that supports more raccoons. You know, it can feed, more mouths can be fed because field corn is out there during, the time when other things are not typically out there naturally you know the frogs and the tur- you know turtles and what not have gone into hibernation for the winter and and now there's this field corn in the fall and the winter for them to fatten up on and, and you know do really well body you know health wise body condition wise and on top of that we've made a lot of old farms over the you know past century where there's lots of old barns and sheds out there on the landscape in addition to old trees but it's some of the we've sort of created this high raccoon population we us humans have we provide a lot of old dwellings for them to get into and and lay up during the winter and then there's acres and acres of field corn out there to stay fat and happy and healthy on and if they're fat and healthy then they have big bigger litters and more, you know right and then on top of that there's less harvest than there used to be on them yeah. And so we have we have we we have way too many raccoons right now on our landscape and and so they can have a higher impact on our on our on you know bird nestings, you know, you know any of our upland bird, you know, pheasants and quail, turkeys, more nests can be predated and other songbirds as well. More nests can be predated by raccoons, you know, because there's more raccoons out there. We can have more problems with disease because there's more raccoons out there, so they transmit it more readily to each other because the density of coons, raccoons, is higher, you know, and things like that. And so, um, and there's more troubles with sweet corn raiding by raccoons, and and raccoons getting into attics and basements and <laughs> you know, roofs and chimneys, you yeah. know, and so, Do, so does yeah. A, does a raccoon a, have right
2: does a does a raccoon have any natural predators? Because that's one thing that I I guess I haven't witnessed is let's say like a coyote hunting a raccoon or, you know, a fox hunting a raccoon or anything like that.
1: An adult raccoon in the Midwest. Has very little natural enemies, the biggest source of mortality to raccoons is probably road kill, yeah, and then trapping too but the number we have a lot of roads in the midwest, Iowa included a lot of them are getting hit on highways then the The only natural enemies can be at times when the coons when they have a litter and and when the pups are still small. Right. Um, coyotes may get them or a horned owl, you know, or, you know, or something like that, but it's, it's not a significant amount of impact on them. Coyotes don't do much. An adult raccoon doesn't have too many natural enemies in the Midwest. Yeah. Now, pri- prior to European settlement, when we used to have a lot of large carnivores left in our state, things like mountain lions, wolves, and things like that, raccoon numbers were very low, you know, back then. Plus the landscape was simply different there wasn't field corn everywhere back then too yeah so so raccoon numbers really started to take off in iowa and the midwest it during the the 80s and it just continued to go up from there and we've seen some some leveling off or declines you know here and there but in general the overall long-term trend for the raccoon population is to continue continued upward on it since Mm -hmm. uh, since the 80s yeah prior to that prior to that, their numbers were relatively low or or normal I guess you could say, and in fact, in the late seventies, there was even concern that we were over harvesting raccoons. if you can believe that
2: oh huh. that's different i um i wanna know what you know like let's just say you take everybody always says that an ecosystem is very fragile right if you take coyotes out of the picture well then uh, uh all these other species will overpopulate or you take a bobcat out and you know another something will the rodents may over, you know overpopulate or whatnot what happens when you take a, a opossum or a raccoon out of the the ecosystem does does it change at all
1: well, um yes and no. The the ecosystem is fragile and we don't understand all the intricacies with it and that's what makes it so fascinating. But at the same time it's also resilient and adaptable. If, so so it all comes down to the 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 level of impact. And so in this case with raccoons there would be it would be a good thing for the ecosystem in general, if raccoon current raccoon numbers were lowered fairly drastically, that would be a good thing in general. Um, it it would be healthier for raccoons themselves. There would be less disease. Um, there, and then there would just be the population would just tend to be healthier too. There's, there would be less competition for denning areas and things like that. But, um, they, they all have their place, even if us humans like them or, or hate them. And so the way to look at it is that, you know, this gets somewhat philosophical even, but in general everything does have its place. But but when populations get out of whack where they get too high, especially if it's mainly art, by artificial means, you know, here where humans have basically propped up the raccoon population and gotten it this high at, you know, somewhat accidentally, you know, unforeseen, but it is happening now. It would be good for the raccoon population to, to be lower than it is now. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And that would be that they would still be, that would be a, a in general, a good thing.
2: I gotcha. Um, so let's, I just want to maybe, let me ask the same question a different way. What if raccoons went extinct? Does the Iowa landscape change from some kind of butterfly effect that uh, you know? It's like, oh my God, okay. if, if this, if we took away all possums or we took away all raccoons, what changes on the landscape?
1: It's it's hard to know if anything at all would change. You know, especially overnight. Yeah. But what what we do know, in general. In, in all things outdoors and, you know, conservation-wise or or wildlife-wise or fisheries-wise, is that if you start taking out uh, players in the ecosystem, there can be ripple effects that, that either you knew would happen or even didn't even know would happen. So it's a dangerous game to play, you know, where if we, let's say, us humans one day decide to go, decided to try to rid the earth of all raccoons. And and we thought that would be the way to go. Life would be good. Then, uh, we, we did that with other animals in the past. And in almost all cases, we came back to regret that, you know? Yeah. And, and so in general, the, the answer is is not to go to the extremes. We don't need a over and we don't need this overabundance of raccoons right now, but we also don't want them to go extinct. Um, so it would, but what would be better is to have them out there on our landscape, but at a much lower density. And so then they would continue to play that role um, of being a predator out there on the landscape and, and things like that, but not have an overly, not have an impact that's, you know, not have too big of an impact, more yeah. of a balanced, you know,
2: impact. So Everybody knows about the coyote for the most part. Everybody knows about raccoons and and possums and uh, beavers, right? Can you provide us with an example of a fur bear in Iowa that might be really rare or uh, a fur bear that most people don't know about?
1: yeah there's a there's a couple. Um, one of them would be right off the top would be the gray fox. We've seen gray fox numbers plummet. Over the last ten to fifteen years, especially, and we're concerned about that. Last year, the reported harvest of gray fox—now this would be pelts that went into the fur market, just like other fur bears. The total for Iowa was seven. Ooh. And that's that's a concern, and it's been low. You know, it's been that low, plus or minus five or ten here for the past few years, and that's getting that's getting too low
2: yeah is there a we don't, part of the state that has has the the gray fox population or is it evenly distributed throughout the entire state
1: uh that's a good question it's they're found throughout the state but nowhere in good high numbers so okay. what we're seeing is there's pockets of them especially i think when you get a pair established that has a few successful litters right and that's about all that we're down to at this point Right. Typically, they are, they are a eastern deciduous forest dwelling animal. What that means is they live in the woods. They're not a prairie animal. So we've always typically had more gray fox in the wooded parts of Iowa, which would be more in the east eastern half of the state. We have fewer gray fox in the western part of the state. So we have them in in southern Iowa and we have them in, you know, southeast Iowa all the way up to northeast Iowa. And what's interesting is this trend with the, the the downward population trend is not unique to Iowa. It's occurring throughout the Midwest, Illinois, Ohio, Indiana, you know, and states like that are seeing that happen too. However, in the southeastern United States, gray fox numbers are good. They're strong. Okay. why is that we're we're not exactly sure why that is and that's so we've actually put in a research proposal we're trying to get funding to do work on the gray fox to find out what's going on with them to find out what those specific causes of mortality are and and the other interesting thing too is in northern minnesota they've seen the gray fox population trend upward in you know our neighbors to the north so so that's some interesting things going on with the gray fox with the, and
2: concerning with the gray fox, is there a correlation to um, a potential population decline with the red fox or is that a
1: healthy so I, species? Red fox um so so gray fox compete everything's a competition for predator and prey out there in the land among predators out there in the landscape, especially so so gray fox have got to make a living and compete against the coyote which has surged in numbers since the 1970s and 80s and and the red fox but the red fox were very plentiful in the 50s and 60s and then they took a they've they've trended downward but they're now at a low low and and somewhat stable to increasing status now for red fox so they're nowhere near as plentiful as they were in the 50s and 60s but they've sort of come back a little bit more um they continue to be plagued with range and uh competition from coyotes right. it's, it's what the two most likely factors are keeping red fox populations you know lower than they used to be um but they so 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 things like the bobcat, maybe red fox maybe coyotes are are hurting gray foxes you know competition wise you know or it's habitat related um where gray fox typically need early successional forest um, to do well where there's a prey base out there, but also some areas of mature timber too. Um, But, and and then the third big thing that we're going to look at is, are there disease problems going on with gray fox? Um, Indirectly, and and direct or indirect. Meaning um, here with gray fox, we What we are going to look at very hard is um, raccoon numbers being high. Raccoons are the, the number one source or vector for distemper. And okay. what we've seen is raccoon, as the raccoon population soars, the gray fox population has, has plummeted. Maybe there's a link there with distemper or some other disease that's un, that we don't understand or know much about. So that's
2: something we'll be looking at, too. Okay. Uh, and just kind of a uh, – I want to get back into these rare species here, but do you ever see a uh, – m- or have historical data of farming practices changes where, you know, they're, they're farming right up to a the 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 creek and there's no buffer strips for pheasants and rabbits and and rodents to live in anymore – have we seen a a decline in any other species like a uh, like a gray fox that relies on a prey type animal that is their habitat is being reduced from farming practices?
1: All of our wildlife species have been impacted by landscape changes. So, yes, it's a major impact to wildlife species, Um, you know, stepping back a bit when European settlers, you know, came into Iowa in the mid 1840s, um, farms were set up, you know, a quarter section at a time and and farming vastly, you know, the the prairies were plowed and the forests were cut down and things like that. And that had, of course, a huge impact because that's the habitat for our wildlife and then over time, obviously farming practices have changed drastically where it's large-scale, high-intensity row crop agriculture now with pesticides, a heavy part of that. And, and so lots of fence rows and woody draws have gone out. And the other big factor, this is a big topic and, and probably don't have time to get into it all, but in a nutshell, we've seen the number of crop varieties or crop types shrink, you know, down to where here in Iowa, it's primarily corn and soybeans. Now, what it used to be, you know, for a period of time in the 1900s was a variety of small cereal grains, small grains, alfalfa, hay fields, and some corn and beans, you know, and at that time, throughout the 1900s, you know, especially the 30s through the 60s, um there was there was less pesticide use up until the sixties and seventies. There was more types of crops out there, smaller fields, you know brushy fence rows and that kind of thing and so for a while there it was a wildlife mecca you know there was habitat plus food now out there on the landscape, more abundant food and then here you know, you know from from the seventies on, the crops got cleaner, there was no weeds in them the fields got bigger, wetlands got drained more, you know, and and there's, you know, and so that obviously impacts wildlife greatly. And so what we have now are a lot of the species that we have in our state now are those that can handle, at least somewhat handle drastic changes or, or can handle, they're more of habitat generalist species. So for example, the coyote is extremely adaptable and can live about almost anywhere. Even in our towns and cities, yeah. deserts you know, and things like that, whereas some specialized species we've lost and we may not get back, so it could be anything like the prairie chicken to you know with fur bears it, it we lost it. we don't have gray wolves, obviously anymore uh, fishers, you know and things like that but but there's there's things that are always changing too you know we've seen a few fishers move back into Iowa we've seen a few black bears move back into Iowa and so the book is still being written you know so to speak on all this it's always always interesting you yeah. know and so to be positive about all this what we do and a lot of the people of Iowa that we enjoy working with it, you know care about wildlife they care about good water quality and and our overall collective understanding you know, is to really see how this is all interconnected. Where good habitat means good water quality, and vice versa. Get you on, know, and, and so a healthy landscape is, healthy, you know, means healthy, good, clean water, and it means healthy wildlife populations, fur bears included. You yeah. know, it's all connected in that way. And and so, so just real quick, in a nutshell, we're not anti-agriculture by any means we're we're- we're in this for wildlife, but we understand we're an agriculture state typically our our view on it all is you know is to farm the best and conserve the rest. you know there's places that probably shouldn't be farmed they're not profitable, so an example might be a river bottom or a wetland prairie pothole wetland you know maybe there's there's good alternatives now more than ever you know with the farm bill and such to maybe put that into conservation but then go ahead and farm, you know, your good ground where there's a high corn suitability rating and a and a, typically in most years you're going to get a good yield from those acres. That's great. We're fine with that, you know. And then and then with we also advocate for farm practices that are not harsh, you know, as far as being are they a good crop to grow in our environment and things like that. Right. And so so there's there can be a balance is what I'm saying out
2: there on the landscape. Right. So Okay. All right. So now, now going back into the rarity of a particular species, you mentioned the gray fox, any, anything else?
1: Yeah. You know, weasels are, a, we don't, we don't have a great estimate of the weasel population, you know, um, long tail, short tails, you know, and, and things like that. We know they're out there and fairly abundant, fairly widely distribute, distributed, but we don't know much more about weasels. They're not They're not endangered, but their numbers aren't super high either. They're a habitat specialist. They need good habitat to do well. They need a lot of mice out there to do well. Um, Where where do they live? Oh, they typically like grassy wetland areas, um, bottomland areas, uh, brushy, you know, woody areas, um, that kind of thing. So so they do well wherever there's rodents, mice especially, and rabbits and that kind of thing. Okay. and muskrats would be another one we're watching there there's been a long term population decline on our muskrats too. So that's something we're watching and may get some research going on with that. There's some things coming down the pipe pipe with that.
2: Yeah, muskrats must have been uh, I don't know what the what it was like in the late eighties for muskrats, but I just that was one animal that we would always have in our traps uh, in the late eighties when I would go with my uncle yeah. or my, or my grandma. Um, what has, has that specifically been a, de- a decrease in wetland habitat that has, uh, reduced their population?
1: It's somewhat on, un- there used to be muskrats nearly everywhere, every little stream, you know, in wetland and, yep. you know, river, pond, lake had them. Right. And, and now they're more limited they're here and and there, but they're not everywhere. Um, we see the best muskrat numbers in our healthy in our marshes where there's the sort of the right water level and and amount of vegetation in them. Um, sometimes we see the best muskrats population response in places where we've managed our shallow lakes in Iowa. Um, for those of you listening, if if you know like where Big Wall Lake is or or uh, Dan Green Slough and some of those that have been part of the shallow lakes renovation program, we've seen a an amazing response by muskrats. Ventura Marsh up here where I'm at, you know, and things like that, where that's a case where some active management with the marsh, with especially with the water levels, and there there in turn the vegetation um, really set the stage for a, a boom in the muskrat population again but then in some of our other landscapes we see very little muskrat numbers so 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 yeah there's been changes with it the reasons are land landscape use and and i we do have you know concerns that maybe you know pesticides are an issue um for them we don't know that for sure but there's you know the, you know good water quality is good for our fish, our mussels, and and even our our fur bearers that utilize those that are in the water.
2: Right, right. All right, so, you know, we've talked a little bit about the rarity now. I want to talk about um, maybe some exciting breakthroughs or um, outcome of research that you guys have done that has... Uh, highlighted a uh, particular fur bear species or uh, has maybe identified a big problem do you have any type of information like that
1: i think uh a couple things would be uh i'm i'm extremely excited to try to get funding to do work on the gray fox yeah and um, and so that'll be coming down the pipe um as far as recently completed ones the one of the bigger ones that I think was a, a big success, and others do too. Was the the bobcat study that was done, and that was done just prior to me being in this position, um, by our previous fur bear biologist Ron Andrews, and also Bill Clark at Iowa State University, and and Todd Gosling with the Iowa DNR, um, from 2000, I believe it was 2004 to 2011. And there was grad students and a PhD student that were all involved with this bobcat study that mainly took place in southern Iowa. And uh, there was a student there; one, her name was Don Redding, that did some extremely, you know, beneficial work with bobcats with Bill Clark and the Iowa DNR. Um, they find, in a nutshell, they found out a lot about bobcats and what they were doing in our state. Huh. They found out about their background and genetics, where these cats were coming from. Nebraska and Kansas, etc Um, they were not from the north. They were coming from the south southwest. Moving into Iowa in a south to north direction. They learned about the the home range or territories of female bobcats and male bobcats. Um they learned about travel patterns, habitat use, some things with diet, you know, and that kind of thing, and it really set the stage to have enough information to have To have a fur bearer season, a modern day harvest season on bobcats, eventually because we felt comfortable knowing enough about that population coming back on their own, they came back on their own, they yeah. were protected you know and and had a chance to come back on their own naturally and spread naturally um so that's that's a big one there,
2: yeah, I'll um, tell you right now, uh just from time spent in the tree stand this fall. I saw three different bobcats. That's the most of any year I've ever seen. And then I have trail camera pictures of a female with, I guess, three kittens uh, or, or yearlings, I guess okay. you would say, wow. in, a, yep. in a particular yep. area. And then um, a couple of years ago, I saw one of the biggest bobcats that I've ever seen. It was a big male and uh, he was hunting a squirrel until some horses interrupt (laughs) that and uh, that's uh, that's pretty cool to see an an animal like that now one thing that I've noticed is with that increase in bobcat sightings over the last three years I have seen a decrease in the turkey population and what I would consider a um, I guess this isn't necessarily a hard fact but the my my April turkey vacation has less gobbles and less turkey sightings in it.
1: Uh, yeah, that's a good question to ask about. And 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 getting into that, Dan, um, before I go into bobcats, um, I'm an avid turkey hunter, I'm an avid upland game bird hunter as well, and um, so I'm you, I'm not just a nothing. I'm not just under the view where the only thing that matters is bobcats. Yes, I'm in fur bears. You know, it's not like that. Um, Obviously, we, it's a, bobcats are native to Iowa and it's a success story that they're back in our state. But at the same time, there are these predator prey interactions that we as hunters do see at times out there and can get concerned about. Um, we did increase the bag limit for bobcats last year across southern Iowa up to from one up to three because um, their numbers are doing so well and and there was a lot of concern in Southeast Iowa. We heard from our our hunters and trappers you know that Bobcat numbers were high, especially in southeast Iowa, and there was concerns with the turkey population there too. That being said, uh it's often not one predator that will drive a game bird population down and be, be necessarily the reason yeah. They can be a contribution to that. But in, in general, um, in the Turkey world, what's a concern is that there's several States that are seeing a downward dec- a downward trend in their wild Turkey population. And it's not well understood why that is, um, and Iowa is starting to see glimpses of that too, where we have some places where there's good habitat. The weather is somewhat variable, but we're not seeing we're seeing turkey numbers slide, yeah. and that's a pretty big concern. They're a success wildlife success story too, and and a great, just a really neat bird. And uh, but there's other things going on out there. Is what I'm getting at. is yeah. there's, there's concerns about black flies or or uh, gnats. Yep are a huge bigger problem now during that nesting period for turkeys than there used to be. Um there may be some other things that are not well understood, but what they are seeing in the turkey world is poor recruitment. They're not which is the number of hens having a successful brood, yeah, and or clutch, yeah. you know, and Missouri and some other states are doing some research on that and I think Iowa um will be doing more on that as well. But Getting back to bobcats, they can be they can predate turkeys, but it's fairly unlikely um, from the studies we've done that they're a major that they're a major predator on them. I know they go after them. I understand that, but they don't seek them out and only feed on turkeys. They get them when they can. It's opportunistic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's likely not what's solely driving that po- turkey population down. Yeah. but it is another wrinkle out there it is another added thing for turkeys to deal with out there
2: right right
1: what we found in the diet studies uh Dan is that the main prey for bobcats is actually rodents uh mice rabbits squirrels
2: yeah Jews, i, I bull, yeah i read that, that somewhere thing. as well so it's one of those things where they don't like they're not going to go out and try to take down a full grown turkey they're going to go and seek out something that's much smaller and they have a higher success rate but if they do come upon you know a a turkey that's just laying there and is completely vulnerable they have no problem going after that yeah i mean
1: a a, a an adult bobcat in iowa can weigh 30 to 35 pounds yeah so it's like a mid-sized dog you know is how big they get but they with them they can they can take the poults the young turkeys obviously fairly easily the poults can fly at a fairly early age too and they they are capable of catching an adult turkey you know like a hen especially especially if she's incubating you know so there's times when bobcats can get turkeys i guess i guess what i just want to emphasize is that they're not out there getting them all the time yeah wiping them out you know?
2: yeah 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 well, we're coming up on a we're coming up on an hour here. So, is there anything else that you would like to mention about the fur bear population in the state of Iowa? Any anything interesting, or um, I guess things that Iowans need to be aware of uh, that could affect trapping regulations or uh, changes to bag limits, or, or just anything interesting to to wrap this episode up with.
1: Yeah, I'll try to name them off here fairly quickly. Dan, uh, one of the main things is that we've sent out, this is year two of a fur harvester's diary survey, and we sent that out to um, a number of our trappers and, and fur hunters, um, asking them to keep track of what they harvest and then send that back into to us. And it's in the form of a diary so they can keep track of it throughout the long First season and then turn that into us. We're very excited about that because that'll help us get trapper and fur hunter effort information. It's not meant to measure how good somebody is at, at doing it. We just want to know how many nights people set, have traps set and how many traps they have set or how many times they go out and call for predators. Yeah. You know, what are people trying for and how, how much, you know, and that kind of thing. So it's not a law enforcement uh, trick, or, or the data won't be misused. I want to just emphasize this is going to come to to our fur bearer program for us to analyze to to just be in touch with what our fur harvesters are are going for and how much time they're doing it. So that's a big thing. That's year two of that, and we want better return rates for that to be able to keep doing that. It's similar to the Iowa bow hunters survey, you know, or or something like that and another thing um, we're going to be uh, the otter and bobcat populations are both doing well right now so we're looking at potential season changes especially for otters on that front Um, coyotes there's a lot going on with coyotes they've become mr. popular the fur market is strong for coyotes last year, the average price per pelt was $25. Uh, we had a record coyote harvest last year. And and so there's, along with that, there's some things going on with people wanting artificial light to be legalized. There's more troubles with trespassing, you know, and things like that. So there's things going on with coyotes. We um, may look at some snare. Deer locks versus breakaways—things coming down the horizon on that. Um, But if that happens, that'll be done in a way, you know, where our snare users or cable restraint folks will have time to adjust their equipment for that. Um, And yeah, I guess that's that's it for now, Dan. Okay. For things that we're looking at, I guess earlier you asked what i do for a job i'm not sure i fully described <laughs> it that. sounds so like you do a, time a lot like. of everything <laughs> yeah I, I could summarize that a little more but if you're out of time that's okay too <laughs> well i'll tell
2: you what what we'll do is we'll um we'll have you back on again uh i would love to hear this research uh how whether or not this research uh proposal makes it through for funding on the on the gray fox and uh, if and when it does we uh, i'd love to get you back on to to talk about that but otherwise thank you for your time man really appreciate you uh uh, chit-chatting with us today about the fur bears in iowa and uh, like i said we'll have to get you on again
1: that sounds good dan appreciate it another topic for some time might be large carnivores too wolves
2: bears mountain lions Oh, absolutely. I would love to get into that stuff. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Another podcast in the books. Huge shout out to Vince and the rest of the Iowa Department of Natural Resources crew for taking time out of their schedule to hop on and chat with us about uh, the animals that they research and what they do throughout a year. I find it very exciting. Uh, I think sometimes there is a disconnect between the Iowa Department of Natural Resources or really in any state, the Department of Natural Resources in that state. These guys try really hard to communicate everything and uh, sometimes that message uh, gets thrown Curveballs, or it's hard to get out to the hunters and the fishermen of the uh, of the state. And uh, it's always good to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. Love what these guys do. They put in a lot of hard work to make sure that we get to enjoy our passion, which is hunting, fishing, trapping, looking for mushrooms, all that stuff. So, uh, other than that, hopefully everybody has an absolutely positive, fun-filled, exciting, energetic uh, 2020. I know I. I'm looking forward to the rest of the year getting outside it's almost time to start shed hunting huge shout out to our partners over at bondurant custom furniture be sure to check out bondurantcustomfurniture.com. be sure to subscribe to the iowa sportsman magazine be sure to go and check out the iowa sportsman website iowasportsman.com and uh, get outside go have fun uh, enjoy mother nature and we'll talk to you next time